Would you please open in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3? We'll be looking at verses 9 to 11. Um, really, verses 9 to 10, I wasn't able to, I won't be able to cover verse 11 this morning. Um, we're continuing the same thought here from last week, which is the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. So last week we established that the greatest thing we can do is know Jesus Christ and have fellowship. And here the idea of knowing is not just intellectual, propositional knowledge. It is experiential fellowship, communion with Jesus Christ. So we're continuing that same idea of knowing Jesus Christ. And verses 9 to 10 elaborates more on that. So I'll start reading verses, I'll start reading verse 7, and then I'll end in verse 11, but give special attention to verse 9 and verse 10. This is the holy, infallible, inerrant word of God. But whatever gain I had, I, ca- I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, take the meager rations of bread that I bring to you, and would you multiply it to feed your people? Oh Lord, we do come hungry and thirsty, and that Christ would reveal himself to us even more clearly as the one who opens the door to him and as the one who suffers with us. Lord, we pray that we would have a deeper fellowship, deeper communion, deeper knowledge of Jesus Christ, for he is our treasure. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Nine weeks ago, after the first sermon I preached, for the summer internship, Jared and Maria took us out to lunch and they asked, you know, what did we think of Beacon Light? And the first word that came to my mind was, was warmth. Or maybe you can say hospitality, or maybe you can say Beacon Light is welcoming um, or inviting. It's a place where you never feel like 
your presence is unwanted. It's a place where no matter who you are, um, whatever your background is, I think Pastor John has cultivated an environment where your presence is actually enjoyed here, no matter who you are. It's a place of invitation. You feel like your presence is desired. And really, I think this morning, we see that Christ invites us to himself. Christ has this warmth, this invitation to us. We see that he desires our presence with him. That he wants us to know him less superficially. He wants us to know him with greater depth, with more intimacy. Jesus Christ wants us to know him. And really, I want to ask two questions regarding this. We're still on the same topic of knowing Jesus Christ. I want to ask first, what opens the invitation to knowing Christ? That's a strange question. On what basis is this invitation open? That's the first question, and that's important. I'll explain it more on the first point. And the second question is, what does Christ invite us to? Where does this invitation lead us? So that's really where we're going to go this morning. You have two points, uh, knowing Christ through righteousness, and the second point is knowing Christ and suffering. So really, Paul is, Paul is inviting us here in this first point. Paul is inviting us to know Christ less superficially, with greater intimacy, and he's saying to the Philippians, count it all loss to know Jesus Christ. And here in verse 9, he's answering the question, on what basis, what basis, what grounds, what is the bedrock of this invitation to know Jesus Christ? How could we, we are fallen, we're sinful, we're, we're unworthy, we're, we're people who have sinned against God. How could we have this intimate fellowship with such a holy God, the king of the universe, the one to which seraphim would shield their faces from. How could we do that? What is the basis of this invitation? How can we have confidence that we can actually have fellowship with Jesus Christ? The underlying assumption in verse 9 is that our fellowship with God has been shattered. That there is this alienation that there's this disruption in the, in the fellowship. That there's this, this estrangement that has occurred. There's a ruptured relationship. We shouldn't expect an invitation in the mail from God. We shouldn't ins- expect an RSVP from God. We've shattered the relationship because we have sinned against him. Because we are unrighteous. Consider Isaiah 59, verse 2. Isaiah says, Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. So because of our iniquities, 
God hides his face from us. He turns his back towards us. God alienates himself from us, and we alienate ourselves from him. So then what's the, what's the solution? The solution is that we need righteousness. So that's why Paul adds that here in verse 9. We need a right standing with God so that we can have fellowship with him. This is why if you look in verse 10, Paul says this righteousness is what? That so that I may know him. So having a right standing with God is the basis to knowing Christ relationally. The purpose of declaring us righteous is so that we can have deep fellowship with Jesus Christ. Really, not only should we ask then, how do we know Christ? Can we know Christ? The bigger question that underlies that is, does Christ know us? Consider Matthew 7. Jesus says, On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So many will assume that they have this reconciled relationship with Christ. Many will assume that because of these mighty works, Christ knows them. And Jesus Christ is here saying, I I do not know them. I never knew you. There's There's a possibility in which we assume that Christ knows us, and yet it isn't true. And so the question really is, how What opens the door to the fellowship with Christ? What grounds the righteousness? What solves the alienation we have with God? What gives us the righteousness needed to have fellowship with Christ? That's the question being answered here in verse 9. And look at what Paul says. Paul says, he gives a negative answer. He says, I am found in Christ, not because of a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. So what opens the invitation, what gives us the righteousness necessary to have fellowship with Christ is not our own doing. It's not because of our initiative. It's not because we have recovered the relationship. It's not because we have met Christ halfway. It's not because we've contributed anything. Paul is saying, I can know Christ not because I've removed the obstacle. Not because I've closed the gap somehow and opened the door somehow. Not because I, I have any righteousness of my own which comes from the law. Okay, so, so then how do we have this righteousness? On what basis are we invited to know Jesus Christ? Paul says then, positively here in verse 9, he says that righteousness which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So in other words, we've been invited to know Jesus Christ, not because we have recovered the relationship, but because God has. 
God has done everything he can. God has done everything to open the doorway to himself. He's the one who opens the fellowship to himself. God has destroyed every obstacle that prevents fellowship. Consider three things of what Paul says here. I give you three things. He says righteousness is through faith in Christ. So the righteousness needed to know Christ is given by Christ. Here, Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.18. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. So Christ himself opens up the door of fellowship to himself, not us. And how does he do that? Christ gives us this righteousness, this right standing with God, by bearing our alienation. He bore our separation. On the cross then, the intimate fellowship between the Father and the Son is shattered. There's estrangement. There's alienation there. There's a disruption of the relationship. God turns his back towards Jesus Christ. He refuses to show his face to him. Listen to what Robert Murray McShane said. He said, Jesus was without any comforts of God. No feeling that God loved him. No feeling that God pitied him. No feeling that God supported him. He was without God. He was Godless, deprived of his God. When Christ cried out, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? You know what the father's answer was? He said, I never knew you. Depart from me, you worker of lawlessness. Christ bears the alienation, the separation. He journeyed somewhere where we would never have to go. He trekked to the outer darkness, away from God's very own presence for us. The idea is that Christ himself opens the door to Christ. Secondly, Notice that righteousness is given. So then not only does Christ bear our alienation, he makes us righteous before God. It's not enough to just say my sins have been forgiven. You have a truncated gospel if you just say my guilt has been removed. That's glorious. But that's not enough. God actually declares you positively righteous. You take on all the, all the obedience of Jesus Christ through your union with him. You have become obedient through Christ. You are truly righteous and holy in the sight of God. If God says to Jesus Christ, I never knew you, depart from me, you know what he says of you. 
He says, this is my beloved son, my beloved daughter, in whom I am well pleased. God gives you the righteousness to stand before him, to have a right relationship with him, to fellowship with him. By becoming righteous, God is pleased then with your presence. And then thirdly, notice that the righteousness is from God. So that's what I've been trying to emphasize. God is the one who gives us a right standing with himself. God, it's God's initiative. It's God's own doing. We don't make friends with God. God makes friends with us. We don't seek after God. God is the one who saw after us. God didn't wait for you then to do something to trigger his heart for you. He's already opening the door, inviting you to come in. In other words, our invitation to know Christ is the result of Christ knowing us. We seek fellowship with Christ because Christ has sought fellowship with us. We are called to intimately know Jesus Christ because he already intimately knows you. Listen to Herman Ritterboss. He says, Knowledge of God is not the result of human initiative, reflection, or inquiry, but of God's concerning himself with man. Knowledge of God presupposes the relationship in which God has willed to place himself to man. And as J.I. Packer says, this knowledge of you is utterly realistic. God has already seen the very hidden corridors of your heart. He already knows the twisted thoughts that you've had that you don't want anyone else to know. He's already lowered the bucket into the deep wells of your souls and seen the worst of you. His knowledge of you is utterly realistic. And yet he still desires to have you with him. He still pays the price. He still invites you to come. Packer goes on to say that no discovery now can, dis can disillusion him about me. He already knew who you were. He already knows who you are. And he still invites you to fellowship with him. And on top of that, he knows you intimately. You don't get lost in a sea of faces. He knows you as if you're the only one in the room. Augustine was quoted this morning in Sunday school. Here's another quote from St. Augustine from the Confessions. He says, O good and all-powerful God, you care for each of us as though each were the only one. 
His knowledge of you is intimate, personal, deep, rich, and it's based off grace. So what opens the invitation to know Christ intimately? It's a fact that we are already known intimately by Christ himself. Listen to Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, 12. He says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Christ already knows you intimately. And he's the one who breaks the obstacles that stands in the way, the unrighteousness. He's the one who provides it. And he invites us then to know him intimately. Well, then secondly, consider the second point, knowing Christ in suffering. So where exactly then do we know Christ intimately, sweetly, personally, genuinely? Where does that happen? Well, Paul elaborates that in verse 10, if you can look at it with me. In verse 10, he says, that I may know him and the power, the power of his resurrection. So knowing Christ involves experiencing the power of his resurrection. Paul wants to experience the same life-generating power that raised Christ from the dead. The same glorious, animating influence that created the universe. Christ invites us then to know the same power, the very same power that he himself experienced when he, when he was raised from the dead. He wants you to share in that power. But what's shocking then in this verse is what comes right after. This resurrection power is directly linked to suffering. Paul wants to know the power of his resurrection, that he may share his sufferings. And I like the NIV. It makes a better parallel. I'll read the NIV for you. It says, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings. Meaning, the astounding paradox is that Paul makes the closest grammatical connection between the power of his resurrection and the sharing and the participation of his sufferings. There are not two separate sectors of experience. They're two sides of one reality. They're inseparably connected. It's not simply sequential. Like suffering now, then power and glory later. It's not a seesaw. Like we experience the debilitating misery of suffering, which is offset by the exhilarating times of power. It's, it's simultaneous. This is the astounding paradox is that this is this overlaps with one another. The experience of the power of the resurrection is experienced in the context of suffering. So just as the light of the sun 
is simultaneous with its heat. The power of the resurrection is simultaneous with sharing in Christ's suffering. So Christ invites us to know the life-giving, powerful, radiant, glorious, Holy Spirit power of the resurrection, not in the removal of suffering, okay, but in suffering. But in suffering. Let me quote Richard Gaffin. He's a New Testament professor at Westminster Theological Seminary. He says, Believers suffer not in spite of or even alongside the fact that they share in Christ's resurrection. Believers suffer because they are raised up and seated with him in heaven. It is as Christians suffer for Christ that God's spirit of glory rests on them. It is as Christians suffer for Christ that God's spirit of glory rests on them. We know Christ more intimately. We experience the power of his resurrection through suffering. That's why Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12, he said, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And I think we should be clear here. Clear here. I, I, don't, I wouldn't limit suffering for Christ to just persecution or martyrdom or even traumatic crises. That happens, and those are very significant. I think, listen to Richard Gaffin again. He's helpful here. He says, suffering for Christ is to take up your cross daily. It involves the mundane frustrations and unspectacular difficulties of our everyday lives when these are endured for the sake of Christ. So chronic illnesses and disabilities, the dull cloud of depression that comes out of nowhere, failing marriages and wayward children, unemployment and poverty, loneliness and sexual abuse, overworked exhaustion and sleeplessness. We are invited to know Christ more deeply and intimately in our daily sufferings. And there's three implications that we should consider. The first one is this. Our suffering is inseparable from receiving righteousness by faith. So if you have been given the righteousness by faith, if you have entered through the doorway to Christ's fellowship, you will suffer. It's a promise. Philippians 1.29, listen to Paul. He says, 
For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. So belief and suffering go together. They're hand in hand with one another. An invitation to know Christ is an invitation to suffer. Secondly, our suffering, this is the second implication, our suffering is with Christ. Paul says, notice what Paul says. He says, we share his sufferings. It's the same word for partnership, fellowship, participation. We share in his sufferings. So when, the, when a Christian suffers and grieves, Christ suffers and grieves. There's a close identification between our suffering and Christ. When, Jesus, when the resurrected Lord encountered Paul on the road, of, uh, road to Damascus, when, he's, when he revealed himself to Paul, while Paul was, or Saul, was persecuting the church, when Stephen's head was crushed by stones and rocks, what did Jesus Christ say? He, did he say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting the church? Did he say, why are you persecuting my people? Jesus Christ said, Saul, why are you persecuting me? There's this close identification with Christ and the suffering of his people. When we suffer, we suffer together with Christ. Timothy Keller, he wrote a book called Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. And he writes, When believers in Jesus suffer, he is quite literally with us in our furnace of trouble and some way actually feeling the flames too. There's a, there's a story of this Scottish young woman named Margaret Maitland. Um, and she was hanging on a stake or they put her on her stake, bound her to a stake at sea in Scotland. But they put her a little bit further away from the deep ocean, a little bit closer to the shore, and they put her friend, one of her companions, nearer to the depths of the ocean. And she was watching her friend, her companion, be swept away by the tide. The tide began to rise, and her friend began to suffer and to drown. And the persecutors asked her, Margaret, they asked, what do you see yonder? And she replied, I see Christ suffering in the person of one of his saints. As we fellowship with Christ in suffering, 
His suffering becomes ours, and our suffering becomes his. Our suffering is with Christ. And then thirdly, our suffering gives us deeper intimacy with Christ. Now, this is a great, indescribable mystery, one that is difficult to put in words. So not only does suffering connect us to Christ and connect Christ to us, suffering brings Christ closer to us and brings us closer to Christ. This is, I think, a mystery Disasters and enemies draw nations closer together. Tragedies draw families closer together. Disease draws spouses closer together. And somehow, suffering draws Christ closer together with us. There's a type of deep fellowship with Christ which cannot be known apart from suffering. Many of you probably have heard of Joni, Johnny or Joni Erickson Tata. Um, she, she knew Christ as a teenager, but it wasn't until the summer of 1967, the year that she graduated high school, that she went to the beach with her friends um, and she misjudged the depth of the water, and she dived in to the murky shallows. And she left there being paralyzed from the shoulders down and forever the rest of her life in a wheelchair as a paraplegic. And for the first two years of the injury, she suffered with anger Bitterness, depression, suicidal ideation. But somehow she got through it and she, she realized that there was this deep, intimate fellowship with Christ. And she writes here about the first time she realized this, this that she gained this deep fellowship with Christ through this. And it's through a dialogue that she has with a firefighter. Listen to what she says. She says, A stressed-out firefighter happened across the wake of my enthusiasm. In the diner where we met, I offered, He's been there. He understands. The fireman's gaze held mine. Me, cheerful and sincere. He, disbelieving and with scorn lining his tired mouth. So he understands. Big deal. What good does that do to me? He bristled as he raised his arms from under the table. His rolled up sleeves revealed the smooth ends of two stumps where hands should be. Burned off in a blaze, he said. Lost my job. And then Joni keeps going. She says, I was taken aback. I was fresh out of the hospital and certainly no theology student or expert on the Bible. Cheer drained from my face. I answered as honestly as I knew how. 
And she says, I don't know all the answers. And I'm not sure if I did that it would help. But I do know the one who has the answers. And then a long pause, his gaze lowered. And she says, and knowing him makes all the difference. I then shocked myself by saying for the first time since my accident, now listen to this. She says, I'd rather be in this wheelchair knowing him than on my feet without him. She knew Christ in a way that she could have never known without the wheelchair. I don't know what chair of affliction you're sitting in. But that's where you meet Christ in the deepest of fellowship. That's where he calls you to the closest knowledge of himself. Charles Spurgeon, he was a 19th century preacher. He was called the Prince of Preachers. He suffered with a lot of physical ailments. Um, He had gout. He had smallpox, rheumatism, inflammation of the kidneys. His wife, Susanna, was bedridden for decades. He said, he once said, I have suffered frightful mental depression, seeking almost to despair. But then later on, as he reflected on it, he was speaking to young ministers. He was lecturing to them. And this is what he said. He said, But the good I have received from my sorrows and pains and griefs is altogether incalculable. Affliction is the best book in a minister's library. And really, affliction is the best book where we read of Christ. Affliction is where we have the deepest fellowship with Christ. So, Christ opens the way then to know himself. He removes the obstacles. And then he invites us into a life with him. And it's a life of both joy and a life of sorrow and a life of suffering with him. But that's where we have the deepest, most intimate fellowship with him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, suffering is no easy thing to deal with, and many questions arise in our minds. And Lord God, it is not the theoretical knowledge, even though that's important, and it is not the mere head knowledge that can give us the strength to endure it but it is the experiential knowledge of Jesus Christ. And, O Lord, I pray for those in this congregation who can hear my voice and who are going through suffering. Lord God, you know know them, Lord. 
and you see them. And Lord God, you enter into it with them. Father, I pray that we would, for us who are not suffering, or maybe our suffering is light in the moment, that this would prepare us to suffer. Dear Lord, we do pray, Father, that you would provide consolation, a deep knowledge of yourself through the deepest pains. And help us, Lord, to be sturdy in Christ. Allow us, Lord, to not fear the dark night of the soul, but that we would find Christ there. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.